Uh, so we continue our series today in 2 Peter. Um, that's actually wrong, isn't it? It's 2 Peter 1.5. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness. So Cam's done that the last couple of weeks uh, and we'll continue to look at what this word uh, goodness means. But I want to start 500, about 510 years ago. And I want to start with a monk who's sitting in a tower. And as he sits in that tower, he reads these words. Romans 1.17, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And previously, when this monk had read these words, he had assumed that the righteousness which was being talked about was our righteousness. And he assumed that somehow he had to be a righteous man, he had to obtain this righteousness in order to have faith. But then it struck him. It struck him that this righteousness that's being talked about isn't a righteousness from within himself, but it is a righteousness that's described as an alien righteousness. It's outside of himself and it comes to him. It was God's righteousness that was being given to him by faith. This was not the moment that started the Reformation. This was Luther and it was in his study before the 95 Theses. So it wasn't the moment that is the catalyst for the Reformation, but I think it's the moment that was the whole undergirding, the whole theological undergirding for the Reformation, because he realised at that moment that nothing we can do earns God's favour. It is only a gift from God. And Luther later says that this is the doctrine, faith alone, this is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. Now, it's important that I start with this passage. It's important that we have this background because as we come to this um, passage today, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, we must understand that we cannot actually add anything to our faith. God has done it all. There is nothing that you can do to uh, earn any more salvation. There's nothing in the past that you could have done, nothing in the future that you can do. It is all a gift of God. And so I come to this passage with some trepidation today because I come thinking, I don't want to tell you that somehow we can add extra things onto our faith, as if we sort of start there, but then there are sort of um, building blocks that we can put there. It's not like that at all. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. That is the end of the matter. By grace alone, through faith alone. We cannot add anything to that. So what do we do with this passage then? Because it clearly says, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. So what does that mean? It seems to go against what we've learnt elsewhere in Scripture. Well, in order to understand it, we need to get at this word for goodness. The word, unfortunately, isn't used very often in the New Testament, which I must admit made my job this week pretty hard. It occurs four times in the New Testament and four times it just sort of mentions it. It doesn't stop to explain. It is, there's no great passage to explain what this word goodness means. What we do know about it, um, the word is arete, for those who are following in Greek, but um, it is not the normal word used for good. 
The normal word used for good is agathos. But I think what Cam has done for us the last couple of weeks has really helped us understand what this word is. I wasn't here last week, but I believe that he talked about excellent conduct. And the week before, he talked about excellent character. And so, excellent character and excellent conduct, together, they make moral excellence. And so, that's how I want to define this word today, this word that we have translated in NIV as goodness, but probably is more about excellent, uh, moral excellence. And to help us understand a little bit more, I want us to put our head in the 2 Peter context. In 2 Peter, there were lots of false teachers around. And those false teachers were saying that it's no longer important to live moral lives. They were saying that lawlessness doesn't matter. It seems they were even encouraging lawlessness. But really important for our understanding today is that they scoffed at the Lord's return. They scoffed at the Lord's return. And what that meant, if they didn't believe that the Lord was coming back soon, then there was this attitude of, why bother? Why does it matter what I do here and now with my life if the Lord is not coming back imminently? They had pushed either the resurrection so far off into the future or they thought it wasn't happening at all that they didn't see a connection with, between their life here and now and the life to come. And that was a great problem and Peter needs to speak into this problem. They were in a time of persecution. They were in a time where the world around them was telling them to live different ways. And Peter says, no, you must pursue moral excellence. You must add moral excellence to your faith. To understand that a little bit more, I want to jump back into another period of time. And we're going to stay in this period of time um, for a reasonable time. And it's the intertestamental period which means the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The reason I want to um, go into this time is because the word arete is used far more during this time. So I want to sort of understand what this moral excellence, this word arete, what it actually means. And so we'll spend some time in there. And during this time, there was a king, and his name was Antiochus, but he called himself Epiphanes. Now, if you know what an epiphany is, it's a, a revelation, a revelation from God. So here's this um, king, that, this Syrian king that comes along, and he calls himself um, God manifest or God revealed. So he's a pretty arrogant man. We also have um, a guy called Jason, who he actually kind of went to Antiochus and he sucked up to him and he paid him some money so that he could be the high priest. Then there's another man that comes along, uh, Menelos. He also sucked up to Antiochus, and then he became the high priest. And then there's a guy a bit later called Judas Maccabeus, and he starts what was known as the Maccabean dynasty. Um, and he sort of re-consecrates the temple. He, he actually adds a new Jewish festival called Hanukkah as well. Now, it's a, with a little concern that I start reading this passage to you because it's from the book of 2 Maccabees. Now, if I told you to open up your Bibles to 2 Maccabees, you'd have a bit of trouble finding it, because it doesn't actually occur in our Bible. It occurs in the Catholic Bible. It was in the uh, Greek Old Testament, 
but it wasn't in the Hebrew Old Testament. So you should be wondering why I'm standing up here and about to read to you a passage that we don't actually find in our Bible. And I guess I've already said I think it really helps us understand uh, a period where there was pressure on people to not live morally excellent lives. So that's sort of the primary reason I want to do it. I, I guess also, if Cam's not here, maybe I can get away with just a little bit of heresy. <laughs> I, I was actually thinking that Peter wouldn't be here too, so without Cam and one of the elders, that I might be all right. So I might need to tone it down just a little bit because Peter is here, but we'll see how we go. But this period of time, there was pressure to conform to the world around. And, and so I'll start reading. So this is from the book of Second Maccabees, and I've um, condensed it a fair bit. It says, when Antiochus, who was called Epiphanes, succeeded to the kingdom, Jason obtained the high priesthood by corruption, which means he, he paid money. Then Jason immediately shifted his compatriots over to the Greek way of life. He destroyed the lawful ways of living and introduced new customs that were contrary to the Jewish law. There was such an extreme Hellenization, which means making everything Greek, an increase in the adoption of foreign ways because of the surpassing wickedness of Jason, who was ungodly and no true high priest, that the priests were no longer intent upon their service at the altar. So it's a period of time where um, the temple's not really being used as a proper um, temple anymore. After a period of three years, Jason sent Menelaus to carry the money to the king Antiochus. And I guess he, he took it there to um, continue being high priest. So he was sucking up again. He was sort of paying a tribute to Antiochus so that he could remain the high priest. And it was to complete the records of essential business. But he, when presented to the king, extolled him with an air of authority. So this is Menelaus, sort of the messenger. He comes with the, the money. He's extolled with an air of authority and secured the high priesthood for himself by outbidding Jason. So he took just a bit of extra money so that he could convince Antiochus that he should be high priest. After receiving the king's orders, he returned, possessing no qualification for the high priesthood, but having a hot temper of a cruel tyrant and the rage of a savage wild beast. So this is how Jason was supplanted by Menelaus. But then there was a false rumour that arose that Antiochus the king was dead. And Jason, realising this, he took no fewer than a thousand men and suddenly made an assault on Jerusalem to recapture the temple. When the troops on the wall had been forced back at the last uh, and at last the city was being taken, Menelaus took refuge in the citadel. But Jason kept relentlessly slaughtering his compatriots, not realising that success at the cost of one's kindred is the greatest misfortune, but imagining that he was setting up trophies of victory over enemies and not his compatriots. So he'd already won, but he kept slaughtering people anyway, which didn't really make a lot of sense. He did not, however, gain control of the government and in the end he only got disgrace from his conspiracy and fled again into the country of the Ammonites. Finally, he met a miserable end. When news of what had happened reached the king, who was Antiochus, 
He took it to mean that Judea was in revolt. He thought that they were having a civil war, so raging inwardly, he left Egypt and took the city by storm. Um, Antiochus often wasn't around because, as kings did in those days, he was out conquering different territories and he was out um, conquering Egypt. He commanded his soldiers to cut down relentlessly everyone they met and to kill those who went into their houses. Then there was massacre of young and old, destruction of boys, women and children, and slaughter of young girls and infants. Within the total of three days, 80,000 were destroyed, 40,000 in hand-to-hand fighting, and as many were sold into slavery as were killed. Not content with this, Antiochus dared to enter the most holy temple in all the world. He took the holy vessels with his polluted hands and swept away with profane hands the votive offerings that other kings had made to enhance the glory and honour of the place. In his arrogance, he said, uh, this is actually jumping ahead a bit, but um, he'd been away again, and when he comes back, he says, when I get there, I will make Jerusalem a cemetery of Jews. But the all-seeing Lord, the God of Israel, struck him with an incurable and invisible blow. He was seized with pain in his bowels, for which there was no relief. Towards the end of his life, he seemed to turn back to God, mainly because he was in so much pain that he cried out to God to save him. He actually then writes a letter to the Jews, um, showing compassion on them and uh, wanting their good. After the death of Antiochus, there was this man called Judas Maccabeus who rose up. And um, the book of Maccabees records that the Lord was leading him to do this. Now, uh, that's probably true because he was rededicating and reconsecrating the temple, so he was doing a very good thing. There are some during this period, though, and this is why it makes it such a fascinating period, there were some during this period that didn't um, agree with the fact that Judas was uh, being in, in charge of the temple. They didn't think he was the rightful high priest. And uh, you've heard of the Pharisees in the New Testament, so they are one of the groups that are formed at this time. And they realise that the temple is not how they want the temple to be and therefore they sort of take themselves off um, and they start having synagogues, um, they start focusing on the words of the Masoretic text or the words of um, the Old Testament rather than focusing on the temple. There was also another group that was even more secluded, I guess. Some of you might have heard of the Essenes and the Essenes took themselves off into the wilderness And when they were there, they um, tried to follow the teaching of the Son of Righteousness that they were looking towards. They believed that they were the true and chosen Israel, that they were the elect ones. So all these groups started to arise during this um, period, but a lot of them were actually removing themselves from society. I'm not saying that the Pharisees or the Essenes did the wrong thing. I suspect in those sort of situations, I would have done a similar thing if that was happening to the temple. But I think for us, when it talks about moral excellence in the Bible, we are never asked to uh, run away and go into hiding as a church. We are always supposed to be there in the society and showing moral excellence within the society. And I'll draw that point out a little bit later. 
Back to the story. So um, Judas Maccabeus and his followers, the Lord leading them on, recovered the temple and the city. They tore down the altars that had been built in the public square by the foreigners and also destroyed the sacred precincts. They purified the sanctuary and made another altar of sacrifice. Then striking fire out of flint, they offered sacrifice. After a lapse of two years, and they offered incense and lighted lamps and set out the bread of the presence. Um, so it's a fascinating story. So two Maccabees, if you do want to uh, look it up and read through that some more. But when we read this story, if you put yourself into the uh, Jewish mindset when their temple has been destroyed and uh, then the people who come into the temple are no true high priests at all, I'd be inclined to think, why bother? Why bother pursuing moral excellence? Why bother upholding the law when everything around us is in decay? Now, if there's no imminent return of the Lord to the temple because the right high priest wasn't in in place and we can't see God's presence there, then why don't we just conform to the world around us? What's the point in battling on? Why don't we just conform to this Greek culture that is around us? Some were conforming to the Greek culture so much that um, apparently some of them were having an uncircumcision ceremony in order to not be considered Jews anymore, but to be considered Greeks. And I guess the question for us is also, why do we bother if there is um, uh, pressure around us, pressure from the world to conform to the world in what they're doing? Why do we bother with moral excellence anymore? I actually asked this question a fair bit last year, when we were doing the Leviticus and Hebrews series. But I asked the question, I guess, not from a, a moral excellence, Um, point of view, but from a sacrificial laws point of view. Because we did hear throughout Leviticus and Hebrews that, you know, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away your sins. Only Jesus can take away your sins. So we start to wonder, why did they go through this ritual, this sacrificial ritual all the time? Why did they go and slaughter animals if they knew that it couldn't actually take away their sins? Part of the answer to that is in their identity and I guess their membership as part of the commonwealth of Israel. It is by doing these ritual things that they actually fitted into to who Israel was, to be part of Israel. It is in doing that weekly um, that they understood their identity as the chosen people. Now, I'm not saying it didn't point to what was to come, but I am saying that they do these things to um, to confirm who they are and to be within those covenant boundaries. And I started to think of this um, a little bit like um, a passport, I guess. They're doing these ritual things because it identifies them as the Jewish people. I also started to think whether it's a bit like um, council rates or something like that. And the the logic there is that um, I'm not a member of Mount Gambier Council because I pay my rates. But by paying my rates, I sort of maintain my membership of the services that are around me. So it was something like that. I don't think that analogy fits um, too well for moral excellence, but I do think the passport idea fits a little bit better for moral excellence. We are identified as the people of God because we have morally excellent conduct. And when the people around us see us, they see who we are. There's like a citizenship badge upon our heads because of the way we act and the way we behave. 
We are children of the Lord by the moral excellence that we do. But I also think that there's some sort of a protection around us because of moral excellence. If we pursue moral excellence, then we are actually forming this protection around us so that we don't drift away from the faith. It's almost like God has given us these uh, laws to protect us to make sure that we stay walking in the faith. And again, if we go back to the passport idea, if you get into trouble in a foreign land, you can go to the Australian embassy and they are the protection around you. So because of your passport, you have that protection around you. And I think if we are not protected by our moral excellence, we'll be far more likely to fall away. So moral excellence maintains our identity as members. But I'm not fully convinced that that's the full answer to this. Sure, it might do that, but there's something far more, something more important for moral excellence. And I believe it's the resurrection. The resurrection breaks into the presence and confirms to us what the the resurrection body will be like. And when the resurrection body breaks into our present, then we actually start living like the resurrection. I need to explain that a whole lot more. And to explain it a whole lot more, I want to go back to the story of Antiochus. You see, there's also a story in 2 Maccabees that talks about seven brothers being um, persecuted, but they were tormented, really. I mean, the first one, he's sort of described as being put on a fry pan and being fried, and that was the first one, and then it gets worse from there. So once the first one's dead, the second one is sort of asked, um, are you going to eat swine flesh? Uh, And he's, well, no, I'm not going to eat swine flesh. Uh, Are you going to conform to um, what Antiochus um, wants you to do? No, I'm not going to do that, so you will die instead. And yes, he will die instead. And the, the torment gets worse and worse as they go along. But I want to read from the, um, about how the fourth one reacted to the death he was about to suffer. He said, One cannot but choose to die at the hands of mortals and to cherish the hope God gives of being raised again by him. This man who is facing death, he had the hope of resurrection and because he had the hope of resurrection, he is able to maintain his belief in the Jewish law. We're not maintaining our belief in the Jewish law, but because of the hope of resurrection, we should be able to maintain our belief in moral excellence. And I tend to think of it a little bit like a runner. I reckon this um, fourth child who was about to die, because he knew that the resurrection was there, the resurrection was so close, he is able to run that bit harder for the moral excellence. He's able to run that little bit harder. I know when I'm um, out running, my last kilometre is always much faster than the ones before. And it's much more painful. But I can maintain that pain because I can see the end in sight. And this was the problem back in 2 Peter. They couldn't see the end in sight. They didn't realise that the Lord's return was imminent. So they weren't prepared to just um, go through that pain. They weren't prepared to do moral excellence even though the world around them was telling them otherwise. We need to be able to see that the Lord's return is imminent for us to be able to press on towards the goal. 
Um, interestingly, the, um, the others looking on and the mother looking on as well to her um, seven children being slaughtered, they all showed this hope in the resurrection. Even the mother, when it came to the seventh child and Antiochus sort of says to her, hey, you probably want your last child to live, don't you? So try and encourage him to go along with what um, I'm asking. And Antiochus was by then promising all the kingdoms of the world, a little bit like um, Jesus and the devil, really. And um, the mother speaks to her son in the Hebrew language and she says to him um, that the resurrection is nearly here and that she will see him in the resurrection. She knew the hope of the resurrection so that he could stand up to moral excellence. I also think, though, that moral excellence is like a window. And this is where eternity breaks into the presence, uh, into the present. It's the certainty of life to come, coming here now. We are freed from the world's standards because of the hope of the resurrection. When the hope of the resurrection breaks into our present, that's when we can start living according to the standards of the then. We're not living to, according to the standards of now because we are so certain about what is to come in our life. We are so certain about the resurrection that we start living for it today. It's not like what we're doing today doesn't matter. It will just be a different life then. No, the hope of the resurrection breaks in now so that we start living morally excellent lives now. Um, I th in terms of applying that, I'm thinking of things like um, you know, drunkenness in our society and things like that. As Christians, we don't need to do that anymore because that won't be happening in eternity. And eternity breaks into the now. We actually realise that we live for the future, not living for the here and now. I did have a conversation with a um, Lutheran guy, not, not in Mount Gambier, this was many years ago in Adelaide. And he said, look, I, I know it says, do not get drunk on wine, but that's why I get drunk on beer. <laughs> um, I, I think he kind of missed the point there. <laughs> the other reason that we need to focus on moral excellence is because I believe it proclaims the resurrection to those around us. It doesn't just benefit us, it benefits everyone around us that is looking on. And I think um, when we have this image of the, um, the stone being rolled away, if we conduct ourselves with moral excellence, we are showing everyone else around us that what Jesus has done matters to our life, and because what Jesus has done matters to our life, there will be this resurrection. We are proclaiming to everyone that Jesus has already risen, and so there is absolute certainty that we too will rise again. And if we too will rise again, then we can go on living as we will be living in eternity with moral excellence. If you are wronged by someone, if they are speaking evil about you, if they injure you physically or financially, as Christians, we don't seek revenge. We don't seek for them to come under judgment. And the reason we don't do this is because those, uh, that revenge and that judgment won't be evident in the resurrection. So we start living now as if we are living in the resurrection. It is the resurrection breaking into the present. Moral excellence proclaims the coming kingdom by showing that we live for the world to come. Moral excellence proclaims the coming kingdom by showing that we live for the resurrection 
to come. When um, Antiochus saw these um, seven brothers being killed, he is described as being astonished at the men's spirit. When we live out the resurrection body, our hope is that the people around us will be astonished by our spirit, astonished by the hope of the resurrection that we have. We live in the resurrection body now because that power has broken through to our lives. Whenever we live morally excellent lives, we are showing the world and ourselves what the resurrection means. Whenever we live morally excellent lives, we are showing the world and ourselves that the resurrection will be a morally excellent place to live. Whenever we live out morally excellent lives, we are showing the world and ourselves that the resurrection is so certain that we choose to already start living it now. And we are showing the world and ourselves that the resurrection body is not altogether different from our present body. In 2 Peter, there seemed to be perhaps a, a belief that uh, we have a physical body now and then a spiritual body in the world to come, so what does it matter what I do with my body now? Uh, that is plainly wrong. I know Paul does say that um, our body will be a slightly different form because what we have now um, is perishable, but what we have in the future is imperishable. So there, is some, there are some differences. But what we do now does matter in terms of eternity. Now, I guess because moral excellence proclaims the resurrection, that is why it starts to make sense that we add moral excellence to faith. You see, faith believes in the resurrection. It believes in what we cannot see yet by sight. And by adding moral excellence, we live out the resurrection and bring the power of the resurrection into our everyday life. Friends, we are fortunate that we don't live in a situation where we will be killed if we maintain our moral excellence. But make no mistake, pressure to conform to the world is ever-present. And these standards are not consistent with the moral excellence of our faith. Therefore, when we are tempted to stand up for ourselves and fight back, to return evil with evil and lies with lies, we must remember that the certainty of the resurrection has broken into the present so that we can confidently live out morally excellent lives. Or when morality and sanctity of marriage are shunned in our society, when society says, why can't two people live together if they love each other, even if they're the same gender? Or why shouldn't people sleep together before they are married? Or why should we uphold Jesus' teaching about divorce and remarriage? As Christians, we must remember that upholding moral excellence is not only good for us, but it proclaims the resurrection to those around us. Or perhaps when there is pressure to live like the world in amounting wealth or climbing to positions of greater importance, we must remember that adding moral excellence to faith is not about what we gain in life, but about eternity breaking through to the present. We started by looking at the context of 2 Peter. 
we heard that there were false teachers there that were saying uh, we can go about being lawless. We don't have to worry about moral excellence. And we saw that they had no connection between this life and the life to come. They did not see that the resurrection life was breaking into the present. I hope today that we have seen that. I hope that we have seen that the resurrection of Christ gives us full confidence in the resurrection to come. I hope that we see that moral excellence matters because it is our identity passport as citizens of heaven and that this passport protects us. And I hope that we see that moral excellence also proclaims to the world that the resurrection is true, definite, it's going to happen. It is so certain that it is going to happen that we live for it here and now. I'm going to ask um, Luke to come up so I'm not doing two things at once. I was trying to work out how this fits in with the construction that we have over here. Um, what I'm thinking is when, you're, when we see a wall next go up, um, I haven't got that wall with me today, but when we see a wall next go up, what we need to imagine is that that wall is talking about the resurrection life. And so the building that we're creating here today, this building is about the resurrection life. It is looking forward to eternity, but it is also eternity breaking into the now, breaking into the present. Thank you, Luke. <laughs> so sure, moral excellence does not add in any way to your salvation. I want to make that clear again. Moral excellence does not add in any way to your salvation. But it does make the reality of that salvation ever-present here and now. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we um, thank you for the morally excellent lives of those who have gone before us. We thank you that we can learn from the stories where people had this full hope of the resurrection body, that they were able to maintain this moral excellence in times when the world was against them. Father, we pray that as we um, approach our lives this week, when we see times when the world is trying to convince us otherwise, where the world is trying to convince us not to live morally excellent lives, that we will know the power of the resurrection body. We will know that the resurrection body has broken into the present so that we can live out what the resurrection body means here and now. Through Christ we pray. Amen.